You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, have a seat, please. And as you do, um, I'd love for you to consciously call somebody to mind that has genuinely made a difference in your life. Somebody that has impacted you. Who are some of the people that come to mind? Um, I I think of, uh, over my life, I think of um, um, Sunday school teachers and others in my church growing up that have just faithfully um, served and just impacted me and shaped me. I think of um, my mom when my dad left and what she did to help shape me. I think of college friends when I was going through an awkward time in life, very socially awkward, and um, as I get to college, they just welcomed this socially awkward kid in, and uh, all of a sudden I had friends, I had a connection, and simple things like that are, are formative. And my guess is that the person, at least most of you, the person that you have in mind, the person that you have in mind, my guess is most of us are moved by somebody that had this particular trait. Humility, humility. I remember um, some people that paid for my seminary 10, 12 years ago is probably when it started. I did a a master's and a doctorate at Dallas Seminary, and I've told some of you the story before. As humbly as could be with no fanfare, they offered to pay for it. And so literally, I'd send them an email that says, you know, it's $7,231.48, and I'd send it to them, and they would go, great, come pick up a check. And that was it. Like I said, I can get documentation. They're like, that's fine. I'm assuming you're not lying about how much seminary costs. So um, they, uh, they w- I would literally go pick up a check. Now, I do have to say that in my selfishness, I remember thinking like, you know, you could pay this online if you wanted to. Like, I'm gonna go drive and pick up a check and then take it in. And I was like, do I tell them? You know, you could just do this online. And then I'm driving to the thing. And this is what hit me. I bet they're wanting me to go. This, this is just my little, my little brain. I bet they're wanting me to go so they, I, it gives me an opportunity to sort of go, well, thank you so much. This is so nice of you. This is so generous. And like kind of stroke their ego a little bit of like, thanks so much. And so that's what I, I don't know why I thought that, but it was the first thing I thought. I went to go pick up my first check and I walked in. I was like, just Jim, be nice. You're grateful. Just show them how grateful you are. If this is, you know, it's fine. Just tell them thank you and how much you appreciate it. And so I walked in ready to just sort of, not really schmooze, but just sort of show my gratitude and assume that they were probably gonna be thinking like, like, yeah, you're darn right, you're thankful. I walked in and the lady at the front desk, I said, hey, I'm here to see this man that, um, owns the business. And she goes, oh, are you Jim? And I said, I am. And she goes, oh, he asked me to give you this. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, that's, thank you. That's nice of you. All right. And I walked out and I went and I paid my seminary. And they paid for it semester after semester, year after year. They never asked to see any documentation, by the way. Um, and year after year, I did not one time because, you know, like, especially when you get, like, with money, it's like we're paying for something for you. It can sort of make things a little, a little odd. I did not feel that one time in years of them just blessing me by doing this. And when I think of people that are humble, honestly, the first three, three people that come to mind are those three families that did that. And you, I'm sure you have people too that have been humble, that have um, done something for you, that has been just a blessing for you, that have um, helped you along in life with no thought to you better thank me for this or you better pay me back or anything like that. Like those people are so important in life. And so here, here's my thesis for the morning is that the world is changed by the humble. 
Worlds are changed by the humble. Now, I get it that you might look at maybe certain politicians or um, certain business leaders or certain leaders in the community, and you might go, well, they seem to have a big impact, and they don't seem super humble, okay? And that may be true. But how has your world changed? I bet you your life has changed by somebody who humbly came alongside you to help you along. That's largely how it happens. I want you to see today that the world is changed by the humble, and I also want you to see the futility of self-promotion. That's what I think Jesus has for us, the futility of self-promotion, which is very counterintuitive in our culture today because we think the goal is to get famous. We need to get on social media. We need to humbly put everything we're doing that's really cool that we want to brag about ourselves on on social media so everybody can go, well, that's great, you know, and like give us props on social media for what we're doing and act like it's, I'm humbled to be given this prestigious award that only three other people have gotten, you know, and put a picture of you as somebody famous and, you know, it's this this bragging way of looking at uh, at ourselves, this futility of self-promotion. I'll show you that here as we go uh, a little bit farther. But that, three reasons you'll see about why lasting impact in the world comes from the humble. Very counterintuitive to our culture. Number one, you know it already because we just talked about it. My guess is almost every single person in here, the person that came to mind was humble. Number two, what we're gonna see here a little bit is Jesus says he's gonna oppose the proud, give grace to the humble. Meaning, in my pride, I'm blocking the Lord out, and so any impact I want to have in the world is now done completely, utterly in my strength instead of the strength of God. His is more, his is better, and that's what he's going to say. So um, he's gonna teach him this from this scene that you just heard read a moment ago, and the little, the little intro to it, the appetizer, if you will, of this passage is about that he, it was a Sabbath, and he went to dine in the house of the rulers of one of the Pharisees, and it says they watched him carefully. They're watching for Jesus to make mistakes And there was a man who was ill, as Pam mentioned, and um, Jesus responded. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And it says they remained silent. Then he healed the man and sent him on his way. And he was essentially teaching them something, and they responded in silence towards him. But they're there at this meal, and there's a lot of things that happened that were very typical. It was very typical for these pious religious people to sit down at the biggest and best meal of the week after they just went and worshiped in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was typical for someone to invite, like a a host to invite a local teacher like Jesus to be there at uh, that meal. It's typical for Jesus to accept the invitation. He did a lot of his ministry around tables. Jesus would eat with anybody, and the irony of saying this, that Jesus would eat with anybody, even the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, why are you eating with them? And Jesus is going, I'm willing to eat with anybody, even you. For the Pharisees, uh, it was very typical for them to try and catch Jesus in a trap. I think this person that was in that room that he healed, the one with dropsy, as it says, um, that was healed was not somebody who was there by chance, but it was the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus in a trap. Two reasons. First of all, um, you, wouldn't ha- you wouldn't normally have somebody with that um, outward looking of a disease, like they would have been considered unclean, and so you wouldn't have wanted them here. Certainly not. You're the host. You've got this teacher here. You wouldn't want them here. But second of all, if you notice, Jesus heals him, and his name doesn't appear to be on the guest list because after they healed him, they all went, okay, you can go now. It's as though you were a prop that we had in here to try and catch Jesus 
and um, now you've served your purpose, so now you can go. That is typical of what the Pharisees tried to do with Jesus. And then it was also very typical for them to lose whenever they had a showdown with Jesus. And the most typical thing that you would hear after a showdown with Jesus and the Pharisees on the part of the Pharisees was this. Silence. They had nothing to say in response. That's what it says. They could not reply to these things. So they're at this meal and Jesus does a brilliant thing. Jesus is the one walking around and he would, they'd be outside and he'd go look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air. Um, there's some fishermen and he says, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. Like makes it real easy for him. Like using things that are there to try and teach a deeper truth. And they're at a meal and so he talks about the parable of the wedding feast. So what did Jewish feasts look like? Well, they did not look like um, this picture that you might have seen of the Last Supper, where they all sat at a nice long table, all facing that way so da Vinci could just paint them perfectly. That's not how they sat at the table. This is just the picture that he did. It would also be the opposite of what you might have seen at um, you know, King Arthur. You hear the legend of the round table, where they would all go sit at the table, and you would have to go, who's in charge here? Because someone's supposed to be in charge, and they're at the head of the table. So I apologize, the best picture I could find is this one about, um, for in that day, the Jews would have these U-shaped setups, usually, and the host, the person of honor, would sit in one of two places, depending on the actual occasion. One was they would sit kind of dead center, and it's almost like the arrow, it's like an arrow almost pointing to them, so it was very, very clear who the host was. Um, usually, and probably what happened at the Last Supper anyway, is the host would sit over here on, um, to your left left of the table, the second person in. And the idea is they would go by and serve and they would get to the host, the guest of honor. Um, they would get to them very, very quickly. But regardless of how, it, which way it was set up on this day and where the host was sitting, what is happening is they are all seeing this is where the host is and everybody knows the seats of honor that you need to go try and get. So, now he told them a parable, verse seven, to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Jesus looks and sees them cozying up to the host right before dinner served so they can get the best seat. He probably sees them just casually, you know, putting their hand on the chair like musical chairs, you know, so when the host goes, well, let's sit and eat, they could go, oh, I'll just sit right here, thank you, and just sit down as quick as they can. They're vying for that seat, and so Jesus calls them out on it. Those who were invited, he noticed how they chose the places of honor. He knows what they're really doing. So he's giving a parable, but he's saying, you guys are doing this. They're making social moves. They had a spiritual problem that was much deeper than just having bad manners. These people were enslaved to their own selfish ambitions, Plutarch was a philosopher in the, uh, and a historian in the 40s, and he, he quotes, or uh, he said, he referred to the friend-making power of the table. Where you sat was your social status. What mattered to them was public reputation, not personal godliness. They were about external obedience and that sense of pride that goes with it. Pastor Kent Hughes says it like this. He says, the Pharisees and scribes, despite all their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. This is the world that we live in today where we applaud at others' downfalls. 
Somebody has a, a falling and we go, good. Like we're looking at the Pharisees sometimes and going, yeah, good, I'm glad I'm not the Pharisees, which is very ironic if you think about it. But we can look at others and when someone falls, have you seen in our culture how we can quickly just fake like, oh, I feel so bad for them. In reality, it's like, oh, good, that's, that was someone that was kind of above me and now they're down a notch and so I feel elevated a bit. Like we just live in a, in a mean culture. This is why, like, with young people especially, some of you didn't have to quite deal with this, but some, like, we just tell our young people, like, anything that you put digitally, just assume it'll just be on a billboard somewhere someday. Any pictures you take of yourself or anybody else, any comments that you make, anything, just assume that it is going to be seen. I know it's just you and, like, three friends in your group chat, or it's just your social media or something like that, but sometime that could be something that somebody just sort of banks and one day brings it up when they would delight in your fall. So Jesus continues, and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Remember, these are very tight-knit communities, these Jewish communities, and dinners are this barometer of your prestige within that community. And so these people that are doing the musical chairs, so when the host says done, they can hurry up and sit there, and they're, they're pushing their way up to try and sit by him. Jesus says, you know what might happen is you might sit there and then someone else comes in and that host in front of everybody has to go, hey, I need you to move. And you know which seats are left? You gotta go to the back of the line. Shameful in that culture. So what do we do instead? He says, but when you are invited, listen to this, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So the opposite happens. Humility. And then the host says, what are you doing down there? Come up by me. One pastor tells a story like this. He says, I had an, I had an experience like this when I intended an installation service for Dr. J. Sung Kim as a senior minister of Philadelphia's historic Korean United Church. The church was packed with well-wishers. I slipped into the back just as the service was beginning, but some of the deacons recognized me as the pastor of a sister church and instead welcomed me as a friend. Before I knew what was happening, someone had pinned a boutonniere to my lapel, ushered me to the front of the church. During the service, I was called upon to give a short message, and afterwards, I was invited to sit down with the church leaders for a banquet. Although I had come to sit in the lowest place, just sort of hang out in the back, I received unexpected and undeserved honor in front of the entire congregation. They gave me one of the best seats in the house. One of the things he's trying to communicate is quite simply this, that you will never really get the honor that you crave. You will never get the honor that you crave. Like, there'll be some of you that are not going to go and watch football anymore. I've talked to many of you, and the reason you're not is because these incredible athletes go and they score a touchdown, and then you, and then you have to watch them sit there and beat their chest, and, and it, you just go, enough. I knew you were a great athlete. If you had just scored and just kind of gone to the bench, I'd be admiring you. But now, because you're beating your chest and you're going, look at me, look at me, I go, it has the opposite effect. You're craving this attention. You're craving that people would look at you, this, this prestige. And he's saying the irony is by chasing it, you usually, the opposite actually happens. 
Or imagine like if, if after the service I go up to Patrick and I go, man, that the offertory, how great thou art. That was really, that was really fantastic. And he goes, uh, yeah, you know, it was. It was. I really uh, kind of nailed that this, uh, at the thing. So thanks for noticing. I was hoping, I figured everybody noticed, but thanks for saying something. Like immediately, here I am trying to pay a nice, don't say that when I tell you that later, by the way. Uh, when I go to try and pay some nice compliment, all of a sudden, if he, if he tries to go, oh, let me milk this for just a little more, immediately it just goes whoop and just drops. Like, well, my respect now all of a sudden just went through the floor. Jesus is saying you will never really get the honor that you crave. R.C. Sproul says it like this, one thing very important. This is not like how we win friends and influence people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, um, R.C. Sproul says, Jesus is not offering a self-serving strategy for achieving recognition by feigning self-deprecation. All right, it's a lot of words. Jesus is not offering a self-serving strategy for achieving recognition by feigning self-deprecation. In other words, instead of by pretending to be humble, good news, then you'll really get this thing that you crave. That's not what he's saying at all. And then he's, he continues, he's advocating genuine humility that waits for, and it's, he says, eschatological vindication, which simply just means um, um, your, your salvation in the eyes of God. I'll sort of leave it at that. Personal eschatology, like as in when you die, you, you've received Christ with humility. Uh, he's advocating genuine humility that awaits eschatological vindication in the next life, independence on God's gracious gift, or said quite simply, it is hard to be both prideful and saved. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, the man who really knows himself in his own heart, who knows God in his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man can never be a proud man. And then if you missed the point of the parable, it says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the idea of um, exalting yourself in the eyes of the world versus exalting yourself in the eyes of the world and who cares, or in, in the eyes of God and who cares what the world thinks. Those are very, very different. <clears throat> this reversal is this deep working, this principle of the kingdom of God. There's a story about, he's, this guy's actually a pilot and he was hang gliding <clears throat> and um, um, he experienced this paradoxical phenomenon one day when he was hang gliding about you have to go low to go up. He was just on this big air current and he rose effortlessly up to, it says, 4,000 feet. And then disaster struck. A sudden downdraft sent his hang glider plummeting down toward the ground. And here's what he says. He says, I was falling at an alarming rate, trapped in an airborne riptide. I was going to crash then I saw him, a red-tailed hawk, six feet off my right wingtip, fighting the same gust that I was. <clears throat> I looked down, 300 feet from the ground and still falling. The trees below seemed like menacing spikes. I looked at the hawk again, and suddenly he banked and flew straight downwind. Downwind? If the right air is anywhere, it's upwind. The hawk was committing suicide. 200 feet. From nowhere, the thought entered my mind. Follow the hawk. It went against everything I knew about flying. But now, all my knowledge was useless. I was at the mercy of the wind. So I followed the hawk. 100 feet. Suddenly, the hawk 
gained altitude. For a split second, I seemed to be suspended motionless in space. Then a warm surge of air started pushing the glider upward. I was stunned. Nothing I knew as a pilot could explain this phenomenon, but it was true. I was rising. The story gives a physical illustration of a basic spiritual principle of the gospel and of the Christian life. To rise up to glory with him, we first have to fall down in humility before him. And when we do this, we're actually following the example of Jesus Christ, the one who humbly took on sin and went to the cross. Or if I could just sum it up real simply, there's one king in the world and it ain't you and it ain't me. You know, we think of, so if Christians are supposed to be humble, that just means we just get walked over. We're just doormats to society. And it's not true at all. What he says when, he, when he's talking about go take the low seat, there, there's a strength to it. There's a decision to that to say, I, I will choose this. I'm not just getting blown by the wind down there. He's saying, go and take the lowest seat. Initiate humility. Pray that God does a work in you that you would live this humble life. And for those who think they can stand before God on their own merits, he says there will be utter humiliation because we don't claim God's approval of us as a right in our life. A couple things to um, just point out here about how can we apply this, which is very odd to say, go apply this thing about being humble. Like it's a little tricky to do because I don't wanna send you out like a bunch of Pharisees to just go, all right, I'm gonna go be more humble than the next guy, you know? Like how do we actually take this and do this. There's a phrase that came up that said, um, one, one pastor just said, have the ambition of humility. Have the ambition of humility. Less applause in the moment, but maybe more in the end. But I think the biggest thing we can do to remember is just know your prideful tendencies. Because probably your prideful tendencies, how your pride will get you is different than how my pride will get me. There are no perfect human beings in the world, but after every election and as we watch people, we go through an election cycle, how come people cannot admit that the person that they voted for also has flaws? Pride. What about young people, like students or kids that walking around and, and not thinking about, oh, hey, there's someone that doesn't know anybody, how can I make them feel welcome? They may not realize this is what's happening, but it's really pride. It's I'm taking care of myself. I've got my friends here, and the people out here are oblivious to me. That's pride. What about if something happens, if you feel the rush of, I've got to go on social media and announce this to the world? It's pride. You ever been in a conversation with somebody, and they kind of keep going on a little bit, and you're thinking, I've kind of got places to be. I have more important things than sitting here and talking to you and listening to you right now. It might be from pride. Or there are theological positions that you know that if you actually verbalize them around the Christian community, you would go, I know I'm, I know I'm wrong here, but I've said this, I've already stood for this, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm finding people that can agree with me. Like there's some theological positions we hold that we will not budge on. And I'm gonna encourage you to think about that and go, is that your pride that is clinging on to it? It might be. Or people that aren't believers. Really what it comes down to is this issue going, I've got this, I've got my 
life. And so what we do with this idea of humility is to know our need and then know that our need has been met in Jesus Christ. That thing that you want, that you do, or that happens and you want to hurry and tell other people about it, go tell God. I'm going to be talking to our mops group, mothers of preschoolers, I'm going to be talking to them, and I have such a heart because those, I believe everybody in that room, um, their husbands are away working, and they're there with preschool children working all day. And I love to get with those moms, and I love to get to talk to them and just remind them that God sees what is happening. God knows that you have changed a bunch of diapers. God knows that you were trying to get them down for a nap, and they didn't get down for a nap. God knows this. God knows this. God knows this. This is your act of worship. And this thing that maybe, like, husband comes home, and you want to go, go. do you, do you know what I've been doing all day? Like, I, like I want vindication, or I want, uh, um, that's not the right word, validation. Sorry, validation of what I've been doing. I need you to know what I've been doing all day. So that you could, so that you can give some affirmation, um, go to the Lord first and foremost. God, this is my act of worship to you, and stay the course. Stay the course. The world is moved by the humble. We know that from our own history. We know God opposes the proud <clears throat> out of love in order to redeem them. But we also know the ultimate world shaper was Jesus Christ Himself. And what epitomized him? Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm -hmm.